presented and brought to you by Today FM. Kia ora Aotearoa. welcome to Rebet Live. I believe this is episode 327. I've got a little note thing here. Make sure I switch it over so I know how many we've done. We've done a few now. I hope your week is going well. Um, I have finished a pretty chaotic and carnage um, two weeks. Let me talk you through it. I believe the last time I've traveled around, went from Mexico to the States, States to New Zealand, traveling around. And then since then, I've, you know, went to Raglan, Topor, Rotorua, the Mount, back to Auckland, and then now uh, back to Silicon Valley and San Francisco. What have I learned on my trip? My last little trip. Actually, I'll tell you who the guest is and then we'll get to the stuff. The guest for today is a legend. I'll tell you he's a legend. I'll tell you the story why. He's the CEO of Z Energy. One of, you know, one of the biggest. You, you go fill up your car with gas, go in there. And the chap behind it is a man called Mike Bennett. So he's going to be joining me on today's show, um, which I'm actually extremely excited about. He's a big brain. He's a good dude. And um, he's going to be with us in a sec. But what have I learned in this last little, this last week? Let's just do like maybe learnings. Let's start with learnings. Learnings in the last week for me. The number one thing I feel is, and there's something about this, and, I, and I've, I, I touched on it last week, which was around this, you know, a lot more Kiwis now have felt it's okay to be verbally toxic and communicate negative things about others or ideas or whatever out in the public domain. And I've been thinking over this last week, what do you do about it, right? I talked to a, a, a friend of mine who I know, he's done very well for himself, and he said, Robert, New Zealand's stuffed, take your money, be greedy, look after yourself, stuff it. I was like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit negative and aggressive, but I kind of appreciate where you're coming from and understand your life's, you know, probably in a different phase to most. Obviously, he's basically retired now and kind of on his own program. But I then thought, okay, when things are negative and, you know, you're in a society if, you know, a lot of good people uh, stop trying, what happens to society if you're in a place where the in community where people stop trying? Let's run back. COVID happens. Rob Fife goes down to Wellington, tries to help. He gets smoked. Mike King steps up talking about suicide. He gets smoked. Ian Taylor steps up to talk about visas and issues and travel. He gets smoked. Susie Wiles steps up. She gets smoked. Almost everyone that steps up publicly is actually trying to help others kind of publicly gets smoked. And that sucks, right? But then I thought, what do I do now? And this is maybe just a bit of a reflection or maybe it's a it's a thought or a query or a, it's a something. It's definitely a flipping something. What am I going to do? Now, I have the ability to be blessed enough to have worked my flipping ass off for years to get to a spot where I've got a show with Today FM and MediaWorks. Thank you, MediaWorks. Thank you, Legal, for navigating my chaos. But more importantly, it goes, if you've got this platform for good, what breadcrumbs can you for, create for other? Like, what are these little sprinkles of good and positivity that you can do to think a bit different, think a bit braver, and move forward? I think that's a fight still worth having. I think it's a fight that needs to be had. And I, more importantly, if I don't do this, who will? There's plenty of people doing awesome stuff in New Zealand, but there needs to be more. There is so much good. There's so many amazing Kiwis doing good stuff that just choose not to talk about it or do it that I think it needs to have a light shot on it to help make more Kiwis see it bigger. This sounds like a little flipping little vent away to the future with how we can be, but I generally do. I'm here in Silicon Valley in the States and I see how awesome we can be. I've seen New Zealand companies go local to global and crush it and smash it. Why can't we do better? Why can't we do more? Why does it have to constantly be this like, 
you know, poor me, woe is me, I'm going to spend 80% of my time just bitching about stuff I can't control. Stuff that noise. What can you control? All right, you wake up, you control what you do with your calendar, with your time, with your friends, with your whanau and your work. All right, cool. Whanau lockdown, prioritize it. Dope. Friends, make sure to keep your balance so you're not all skewed one way. Sweet. But then at work, I just take your last 10 conversations and think about what percentage was talking about, you know, like people and politics and blah and negativity and toxicity. What stuff was just talking about things and average stuff. And what percentage was talking about awesomeness or ideas and positivity and momentum. Sometimes you just need two or three people to be on the same page and you've got your own little wolf pack. Just like the hangover. Get yourself a flipping wolf pack. And I'm very fortunate enough, I have a good, good small circle of a pack. We're positive, we're supportive of each other, we're not je- jealous about what anyone's up to because we want everyone to win. I want everyone to win. So I've been thinking just, you know, you, you travel and you, you know, I went to Burning Man and my eyes are opened and I've seen the world in different lights. Yes, I have. But also just genuinely, life's short. Do cool shit. Like what do you want to do and how do you want to do it? And one of the things for me, which I think is important, is this. Having been been able to have conversations like this publicly, being able to, you know, engage with whoever I want to talk about whatever I want. And on that note, I want to thank all my future guests for wanting to have a talk to me. Everyone is busy. Everyone's got a million things to do. And to do these chats, they take time, they take energy, and they take honesty and effort, right? We're going to talk about whatever we're going to talk about. And I want to go deep with it. I don't want some superficial stuff on the top. I want to go deeper than that. I think braver conversations need to be had. So... Without that little rant over, jingle bells. Maybe I am just going to get become the old ranty dude when I'm like 80. Oh my gosh, back in my day, we had this thing called COVID. Um, I'm learning a lot by being able to talk to smart people. And it's important for me to be able to share that with others. So I just want to be able to, you know, have a platform here. Thank everyone that's involved with me. And for all the guests that ever had, you know, the 326 guests that have come on before. And this 307th guest, 327th guest, which is about to join us now. So, let's get into it. Rock and roll, our featured guest for today. He's a Mealy Talents. Talents we're about to find a lot more about. He's the Chief Executive Officer, the big dog at Z Energy, or Z, depending on where you were brought up. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Bennett. Kia ora, my friend. Hey, kia ora. Or should I say, woof, woof, if you describe me as a big dog. <laughs> they will, that's a... That's straight into it. Yes. Well, I have different ways. So if if someone's like epic at their job, I'll call them a weapon. If someone's usually a CEO, I'll call them a big dog. But um, it's great we're getting straight into it. I understand you are a very busy man. I know you are running up a bunch of stuff all around Aotearoa. So I appreciate the time to, to, you know, spend a bit of time with the peoples. Us down here on the streets all around. And I would like to start the interview from saying, Mike, you may not, it was a very small gesture which you did, and this is not a paid endorsement, this is not a sponsorship at all, but a couple of years ago we did it, when we did our tour um, from north to south all around New Zealand, we went and spoke to a whole bunch of different low decile schools, uh, we partnered with Juicy, they gave us a little camper van, and we're speaking out for it, um, I reached out to you on LinkedIn, and without even flinching you were like, hell yeah, we'll give you some free gas, and ever since then I've literally told people, I mess with Z just because you were just a good dude to help us out that time. And I just literally tell everyone, every time we're driving, I'm like, nah, man, we go to Z. So I would like to, it was a very small favor you did, but on the mission, the stuff that we're doing, it meant a lot to me. So I'll be forever grateful. Um, And so I just want to start off by saying thank you and give you a little little bit of flowers for It was a small gesture you did, but actually was was pretty cool and made a difference to our mission when we were um, traveling around. So I'll start by saying thank you. Uh, You're welcome. And I'm I'm very personally and, and obviously through Z, prepared and willing to support people who are on a mission like that. I mean, I 
I was in a, what a, my high school is now a decile one high school. Um, I don't know what the hell it was when I was going through high school. So I know how important it is to have people like yourself as role models connecting with our youth to help them see perhaps futures they couldn't imagine for themselves. Yeah, it, it was a really heavy trip. And, you know, for those who don't know, we basically traveled the whole country talking to like thousands of students and just like hearing their stories and their communities. And I obviously understand with Zed that you're extremely involved with the communities as well. So before we get to, into the story and stuff, I just wanted to start off with just a quick bit of flowers. All right, big dog, let's rewind it back a bit. If you were 10 years old and then someone said, hey, one day, Mike, you're going to be leading this thing called Z, and you're going to be up there as one of the, the, the top dogs in Aotearoa in terms of corporate and also with the give back to community. Would you have genuinely believed yourself or would you have gone, you're flipping tripping, mate? What was the mindset of 10-year-old Mike Bennett's? Yeah, well, you, I would have probably said you would have been tripping, although that probably wasn't language that existed back in the day. I mean, when I was, when I was 10 years old, I, um, I actually had aspirations to be a lawyer um, and... A barrister so i wanted to go to court and try big cases and i remember sharing that ambition with some people and they said well you'd be really good at that and it kind of validated it for me which was at one level really nice and you know by the time i was 20 i realized that is not the life for me and left university um, as a result having embarked upon that sort of career but it's, i think it's really important that you have ambitions for yourself as best you can but equally how people validate or not those ambitions whether you're 8 10 12 15 I think uh, it can become pretty well determinate in how you live your life. Most young kids, when they say they've got a dream to do something like that, a lot of people would get, I guess, not as much support. Did you have quite a supportive circle as a young buck on the come up? Like what was your, like in a, in a tweet, what was that first 10, 15 years like? Well, I, I um, had very, very supportive and loving parents. And I think it's pretty important to acknowledge that in Aotearoa, today, not a lot of kids have that, you know, a growing proportion of children don't have that. So that's probably the first place to start loving, caring parents. I didn't grow up in a wealthy household. You know, my dad was like, like, like a truck driver, mum worked part time to kind of make things, you know, go the distance, so to speak. So I was never short of love, didn't have all the material things perhaps that other kids would have. Um, but I always had that support. And what I realized, again, is that the, the teachers that you have, you know, particularly when you get to high school, they, as I said, can invalidate or invalidate some of your ambitions so i think it's really easy to forget just how important it is for people to have beyond even fano that sort of support mechanism such that you get in some respects a reality check uh, in a supportive way but equally that, that you get you're encouraged to fulfill upon my yeah my ambition was whatever it was and yeah clearly is i'm not well suited for that that's why i left it but actually it's it just got me on the path to actually i could do better than just become you know frankly become a truck driver like my dad nothing wrong with that by the way but it meant that I was the first in my family to go to university, for example. Um, mm. It's really important, I think, for children that are doing things for the first time in their families to have that sort of uh, support, guidance, and sometimes a clip around the ear, uh, metaphorically, um, to, to kind of help you on your way instead of saying, look, son, don't play so small. So so with that, you, you were the first to break through to go to university, but then you said that, what, you dropped out or you changed that? How was, how was, that, how was that chat? Yeah, that was not good. Uh, so I, I started doing you know, law at Auckland University, um, found it wasn't really for me. Actually, to be honest, I was intimidated by the whole university thing, you know, like a kid from South Auckland going in there. And I just couldn't connect. So I remember coming home to my parents and, and lying to them, frankly, and, and saying, look, I, I um, this whole law thing, you start off with a big class in year one and it gets smaller and smaller. And there's a whole lot of kids that are 
you're denying me that opportunity. And my parents bought into that because they didn't know any better. So I, I bummed around for a couple of years uh, and then I was fortunate enough to join BP um, and I did my undergrad and postgrad studies with them while I was working. So yeah, again, kind of a little bit of luck. Uh, and again, some people helped me along the way. I remember one person putting this job ad in front of me saying, look, mate, you should, you're wasting your time cleaning motor caravans and rental cars here. You should be doing better than that. Um, and they gave me this ad and I said, oh, I'll kind of give it a go. And I was lucky enough to get into the process. There's a bit of a maverick employer. So I didn't really tick all the boxes, but he said, oh, there's something about you and I'll, I'll give you a go. So yeah, a little bit of luck. And I do believe you, you make your luck sometimes, particularly if you're open to the feedback of others and, and being willing to let people help you. So are you saying your first employer is technically kind of still kind of your current employer? Uh, no, I'm still in the same industry. Um, yeah. you know, I, I spent two years, as I said, contract cleaning, you know, motor cars, uh, motor caravans and rental cars. I made a bomb. You know, I was lucky enough to buy my first house at, at 21, which really happened when I joined BP um, because they gave me a company car. And I, could, I could sell my own near new car um, and that gave me the deposit on a house. Now, that's you know, really tough to do today. But that, that was just, you know, that turned out pretty well, when, if you think about it. And like most young lads, you know, my whole world was all about my car. So it was a relatively, you know, the car was worth, like I sold it for 11 grand and I bought a house for 43 and a half. Uh, so yeah, it was, yeah, it was very, very fortunate. Um, and yeah, I, I was supported all the way through and continue to be supported all the way through you know, my career. So the big question is what type of car was it that's worth a quarter of the house? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a, a Toyota Corolla SR, so that was a coupe. Had big sheepskins in it, the fluffy dice. So this is like the uh, this is the mid eighties, mate. So it was uh, yeah, iconic. The fluffy top. dice, the fluffy <laughs> dice. We're going there. I like it. So what? A, that's a that's a great strategic move. Anyway, obviously the ratios are a lot different in in twenty twenty two. So you get into the game when you transition from law into outside and sort of traveling around. Was there something from law school or there, was there a system process or structure or was there kind of some type of like routines or something that you were kind of took as a bit of a template into into the corporate world after that? Like what were some of the, the I guess, the the blueprints or stuff that you really transitioned to, to, to your next career? Um, absolutely nothing, to be honest with you. I just, <laughs> <laughs> because, I, because I didn't get into it. I mean, I even feel like uh, I'm very into it because I, I was like a, part-time student I, I wasn't putting my heart was not there i found every reason not to go to university you know i, I failed most of my papers um it was pretty tough for a kid that had come through you know with a very strong academic record well tough for my parents actually not so tough for me at the time uh, but uh, what i did learn is that uh, again the feedback i got from the people i was working with these you know, adults you know parents old, you know people old enough to be like my parents saying to me mate why are you like a smart kid why are you here and I just started to realize, well, actually, I'm making really good money, which is really important when you come from a background like mine. But actually, maybe there's, there's something these people know that I don't know. So if anything, I took that, um, that, that inquiring mindset into when I eventually joined BP. So I was very open to hearing from others and learning from others rather than saying, look, yeah, look how clever I am. I know what I'm doing and therefore just mold the world around me. I was um, much more open to actually molding myself around the world. Well, I think the bit there, Mike, is you were, you clearly had a circle around you that could see further beyond uh, your current circumstance, but more into the potential of what you could obviously become. Now, as time went on, 
did the relationships with those same kind of inner circle almost become clear when it sort of validated when they started to actually see a career as where they believed you could actually go and the perception of where they thought you could was actually the reality? Like how did those relationships sort of play out over the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, they played out in, in different ways, as you'd expect. And in some cases, if I think about it, and you're prompted by your question, it was almost like a, like decade-long decade experiences. So the people who helped me and helped me see things kind of drifted off. I, you know, not that I said, right, I'm, I'm past you now. But, yeah, that people come into your lives and come out of your life yeah, beyond Farno. I've got a couple of good mates from back in the day. Um, but, yeah, over, over 10 years, particularly once I started to work overseas, you, you tend to be less connected to people. But I can, I can very easily name, you know, like these 10 people that had a profound impact on my life, whether it was that person who gave me that original job ad, uh, one of my best ever bosses um, when I was, you know, sort of, Early in my career at BP, some of the some of the things that he said, like about leadership, he said to me, uh, "Yeah, it's all about getting the job done, mate." He had this gravelly voice. He was about you know twenty years older than me, which is a big age gap when you're only twenty five. Someone of forty five is very experienced and senior to you. Uh, yeah, and then you know the only woman boss I've ever had when I worked in London, she was just really awesome, and again in a very very different way. So I can, as I said, I can name the people almost by the phrase they use that helped me open up my mind to actually think about things in a different way. Each of those times you had those people, were they seismic jumps? Like, you know, within my path, there'd been a couple of people and one or two questions or just simple words would elevate thinking to such a different mm. level, right? These sort of, I guess, like levels or, or jumps that you were doing, was it quite dramatic or was it just kind of constantly just like leveling up leveling up leveling up like over time as you were sort of existing around and i'm guessing as you get bigger too your world kind of gets smaller in some respects how was that how'd that play out over time yeah it's incremental improvements and then you know from say your snowboarding background you don't really notice day by day how you're getting better but if you look back at your times or, or what you're able to achieve say acrobatically you go like wow a year ago i couldn't do that and that was like what it was like for me. I'd say like, like 10 years ago, I would never have dreamt about having something like this or the opportunities or the learning that I've been able to bank. But it, it, I think the whole idea of improvement is it's those little things you can do day by day that cumulatively add up to quite a lot over, say, a five or 10 year period. So I've talked to some people that deal with, you know, big zeros, you know, tens, hundreds, if not sometimes, you know, a billion or two of, of transactions and big stuff. And I, I asked them a question around, does the game stay the same but the numbers change or does the game actually change and if i was to ask that to you you've you know from the the 1985 corolla or whatever it was into into you know dealing with obviously quite a few more zeros the game for you in terms of business is it the same game with more zeros or is the game actually changed and different how would you describe that for you yeah i think when you work as long as i have yeah, the game has changed. The game today, the game of business today is really different to days gone by. And uh, whatever numbers you're responsible for, it's always something points something in a spreadsheet. Yeah, dollar K, dollar M, dollar B. So, and I think it's too easy to get distracted by the, the numbers. Like, I, yeah, I don't feel, uh, if you like, um, any more capable, any more confident when I've got you know, something points something B in terms of what I'm responsible for compared to the K that I might have been responsible for many years ago. See, I think any, particularly when you're in a leadership role, you've got to be careful you don't kind of get off on um, on the numbers or the size of things. I think you have to be responsible for that, but actually relate to it as I now have responsibility for the 
hundreds of employees that work for me now versus the two I originally supervised when I first started you know, in, in, in an um, early supervisory type role. So you've got to be really careful. The numbers are just the numbers, mate. It's the scoreboard. Mm. Um, the scoreboard is important, but actually the game you're playing, how you play the game, uh, how you help others play the game is really important. And you do that really, really well, then the scoreboard takes care of itself. Do you think that the metrics of data in today's leadership, because there's so much more accessible, has actually changed the way leaders lead because there's so much more access to lots of things and dashboards and widgets and dot, 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 dot. Because there's been an influx of it, do you think it's changed leadership? Yeah, I think it has, uh, for the good and for the worse. I think from on the good side, you have, uh, data and the availability of it, the frequency of it, the reliability of it means you're much more accurately informed. So you take, you know, say, something like employee engagement. In Z, we measure that every month. Right? We have about 75% of our people complete a 10-minute survey. They give us quantitative scores and a whole bunch of qualitative feedback. Now, that's really different to, say, 10 years ago when you do the annual engagement survey. So it's much more real-time, much more able to respond. And actually, it's all um, all online type stuff. So I can engage with people anonymously from their end on comments that they make. So that that's, gives me insights I would never have had in the past. And I think what your question's pointing to, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the data and get kind of lost in all the spreadsheets. But I think business is pretty simple. You've got to have a product or service that people want. You've got to sell it for more than what it costs to manufacture or deliver. You've got to make sure that you build loyalty with your customers in whatever way that is appropriate. You've got to make sure you have a, a bunch of people who are kind of right with the mission. You have the work they're doing is more than just a job. So they do their best work, which then makes things even better uh, for customers. So I think it's still pretty simple. Engage people delivering products and services that are priced appropriately and customers are looking for that and, and enjoy the experience. It's, that's the same today as it was 40, 50, even 100 years ago. It's just a little bit more complex today in a way that can be helpful, but equally can be distracting. It's a great summation, but it's also, you know, it's like sometimes simplicity is the ultimate sophistication because as simple as that sounds, the majority of every single startup or small business fails within that first five years. So even though <laughs> these things sound simple, it's also, you know, if you want to lose some weight, just, you know, eat healthy and go to the gym, but still, you know, a bunch of us still got a few more kgs on. Sometimes it is that thing of the simplicity of it. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll get into that. So within the i guess scales of power and business as things get bigger and there's a lot more strategic decisions to start looking at horizons start looking out it, do you, are you finding that the best leadership that you're seeing within your business and, and others as well is that way of i guess really i guess simplifying the complex and then yeah. accurately being able to communicate that through so talk me through that challenge of communication from a ceo to its its people's perspective like whether you we headspace that because there's some leaders that do it amazing and sometimes unfortunately their brains can be a bit too big that they don't actually clearly articulate it the way that it, people actually need to get the buy-in for wherever the work is going to go you know so talk me through that from your side yeah i'll start off with a quote from a guy called oliver wendell holmes who was a u.s supreme court justice back in the, i think the 1920s and he says uh, you have to excuse the language it's a bit old-fashioned he says, for the simplicity, this side of complexity, I would not give you a fig. But for the simplicity, the other side of complexity, I would give you all that I have. I should kind of noodle that one for a minute. So what he's effectively saying is when we come up against complexity, we often dumb it down. Whereas, and he's saying he would not give you a fig for that. But if you actually push through that complexity, there is simplicity the other side of that. 
think about it like going through the sound barrier, you know, a whole lot of shaking and all that. And then you come out the other side and it's really smooth sailing. I think a lot of our business leaders either get stuck with complexity or they end up dumbing it down to the point, dumbing it down to such a level that the, the insight is lost. So beyond the quote, I think you're absolutely right. I think leaders could do more to use metaphors like I just did around the sound barrier to make a point. I think leaders need to be pretty effective today around storytelling, around being more future backwards rather than pass forward and how they talk about things with their people. Uh, and leaders need to listen way more carefully um, and listen to both what's not said as well as to what is said. You know, I spent a lot of my career working in Asia, a you know, very different culture, say to New Zealand or another extreme, the more American end of town. Um, so you've got to listen way more carefully in Asia to what's not being said as the feedback you are being given versus, say, a very American way of doing things, which you'd be much more familiar with than I am about, you know, it's kind of bang in between the eyes, here it is, bro, that sort of stuff. You said something interesting, Mike, talking from the future backwards. I haven't heard that term before, but I know exactly kind of what you're saying. Just elaborate that on that a little bit. Yeah, I think um, there's a predictable future that's written for all of us, for you, for me. And not that the predictable future is a bad thing, but it's very much past-based. It's like you know, continuing the trend uh, because I did that ages ago and failed. That's that's going to let me do it in the future. It's all it's a wonderful story we tell ourselves. It's all past-based and it's trending forward. But actually, we, as particularly as leaders, we have this choice around putting ourselves into the future, standing for something, and immediately you stand for it. There is a gap between that future and the current reality. And the role of leadership is just, you know, again, simplifying it, is just to close the gap. Now, that's easy, easier said than done, but if you don't put yourself into that future situation and create the gap, whatever gap you have is really small incremental changes on the past, if you're lucky, um, and that whole notion, I think leadership is all about intervening into uh, or causing something to happen that would otherwise not happen. You know, and the predictable future is going to happen whether you or I turn up to work tomorrow, you know, your, your, your enterprises, my enterprises, there's a predictable future that will happen. We could almost go to sleep for the next six months and that future will be no different if we came to work every day. But our job is to create an extraordinary future by standing you know, at some stage into the future getting clear and committed to something and then the gap arises and then you just work on the gap, mate. So, so that becomes, that leads directly, Mike, into the bravery for leadership to enable and empower the employees to go towards those things and a, and a, and a, and a strong enough vision for what things could be, which obviously always comes up again, either tension from the board or investors or yada, yada, yada. How do you, how do you be braver for that big future when so many around you in a bigger organization are more on, I guess, defense with either regulation or the the safety side, tension with progression of either, either innovation and stuff to forward. How do you navigate that? Yeah, really carefully and mindfully, obviously. I think it's a matter of, you don't, you know, I think, well, I'm not the sort of person that goes into a dark room, dreams up a big bold idea, then comes out and says, oh, here we go, team, this is, this is what what we're all about and they then shit themselves and go like you know that's impossible i don't want to be here yeah because he's putting our bonuses at risk and all that you know, you know my personal reputations you know on the line here so i think it's something around the collaboration of all of that i think the best leaders are sense makers now they are sense makers not in a way that they just simply aggregate what people are talking about or, or what their you know, little mini aspirations are about they are making sense of the organization internally externally customers markets stakeholders and they're being ambitious about that sense making such that there is a gap, a meaningful gap 
that is not just solved by doing more of the same. It requires you to go outside of yourself individually and collectively as a firm to, to solve that. So yeah, a lot of it's about sense making rather than your know, dark room, big old stuff. And I think if you can find the sweet spot there, I think you're onto a winner. Uh, you're not guaranteed success, but I think it's a lot different to being, you know, in la-la land, as my nephew would say. Mm. Uh, if you're in la-la land, people just give up before they get started. But equally, if you play too small, your great things never get never get done because you do, you can't imagine them for yourself in the first place. So, strategic question: Most of the handbrakes in big organisations are usually, you know, in, either internal analytics focused, legal focused, procurement, all these other things, which are kind of like rigid into this box. But you're talking about before, Mike, about how storytelling stuff in the future, which is kind of this creative lens, does better storytelling internally of a big organization help those who are usually handbrakes and on defense actually move faster to offense is that a bit of a ninja move there around the the, the brand the, the power of storytelling for those that don't quite get it yeah i think you think you're right if i came up with sort of two dimensions to how you do your job in a, in a senior role you've got like leadership and management so you can't you can't achieve great things solely by leadership you can't just go out there and say here's a big bold future there you go, my work is done. You do need to have management, which is around the handbrake, if you like. It's about, you know, do we have good compliance? You know, do we have a plan for this? Can we manage the risks? You need both. I think you, you, if you want to get after something really big, you've got to create, uh, in my language, a game worth playing for your people. Yeah, and lawyers will say, actually, that's a game worth playing, and I'm going to apply my talents and skills to that game. So then, I, as you say, they tend to move more onto offense than defense, although they still bring all of their, their risk management they're thinking about compliance all that stuff is still there but it's for a game worth playing not a not a not a, um, a game called you know let's minimize risk yeah, mm. so you've got to do both you've got to manage you've got to measure things like risk planning and all that stuff resource allocation and you've got to story tell create bold futures uh, create some ambition and, and help people believe that they can do more than what they think they're capable of well there's something in that tension right because you know, there's been plenty say with like, you know, a Steve Jobs or something that may be totally over tipped on one side with just real, real bad weaknesses, but there's just like straight vision out there, whatever. What type of the best leaders that you're seeing in 2022, do you think that the best are 50-50 or they skewed a bit more onto the leadership over management or is it like, you know, bringing a great COO to basically deal with all that other stuff or like what type of mixtures are you seeing in terms of either an individual that's splitting it themselves or bringing a small team that's obviously trusted around them to sort of, I guess, allocate those parts of what's need to get done to shift the business forward? Yeah, I think you're more likely to be successful as a, as a leader if you realise you, yeah, there's no, in my view anyway, there's no way you are smart enough talented enough etc to do this on your own so it's out of putting together a team that brings real diversity to the table that um, makes up for what you, you don't have as a leader or as a leader perhaps you play in that position that the rest of the team aren't capable of playing and i think about how i've done my job um certainly it's said over 13 years i played in different positions to make up for what the team didn't necessarily have inherently um that's not kind of saying look how clear I am. I just realised that I can't always be, uh, if you like, the visionary. Um, if, if there's something else more fundamental that's required on the management side of things, so I think mm. yeah, it's more of a team. It's much more of a team game. Yeah, every team, every great team has a captain, but the captain does not single-handedly get the team across the line. In all cases, sometimes when you know you mentioned, I don't know, Richie McCaw, the last three minutes of the French versus All Blacks World, World Cup final in New Zealand, yeah, he probably crossed the line. But actually, everything that enabled that to 
put him into that position was all about what the team had done throughout that tournament, such that there are times where the lead has to be the sole source of uh, inspiration, etc. But most of the time, it's a team. It's a team game. And actually, I really resent. Well, actually, I probably do resent. I should be moderate my language. I, I struggle with the notion of the hero. So, I, I really do. And I've worked with right. some incredibly talented people uh, who could be that, uh, but I just don't think single-handedly you can do it on your own. Well, it's also that tension where someone wants the title, but not really all the, the fluff around it. They want the, the yeah. PR and the pop, but they, and the, the nice little LinkedIn update, but they don't necessarily want the drama and the, the drama that comes along with it. On that, you, you said something before, Mike, around diversity. I was just thinking earlier to the conversation, Mike, you are talking about one of your best leaders um, over in Europe was um, a female. But if I'm going back that time, you know, there's these waves of, you know, diversity and inclusion now across all sorts of stuff. I'm imagining if she was saying, you know, she was potentially one of your only female bosses, she would have been one of the, probably the only big, big bosses that was a female potentially back in anywhere, right? So what made her so special then? And how much of a weapon was she actually to be in, a, I'm sure, in a pretty 98% heavy male-dominated alpha CEO sort of space? I'm, I'm intrigued on who this lady is and, and what she taught you. Yes, she was a weapon, coming back to your earlier definition. Her name was Vivian Cox. She was in sort of the, the top five or six in, in BP worldwide, and I happened to be her chief of staff. Kind of kept the office tidy and made sure she was successful. Uh, yeah. But like, the, like the chief of staff does in the White House, so to speak. So I worked very, very closely with her. So what I think made her a weapon was she was really authentic. Right? I mean, she was, she was, she's an incredibly talented person. So it's not like she made a little bit go a long way. She had a, she had a lot, lot to offer, but she never lost sight of herself. And it took me, you know, it wasn't until after I had finished working with her and learned a couple of other things that I realised that she did, she did play a game with, did she did create a game with for herself and and. and her role within within the firm and she was she she stood for certain things like I, I, I remember one time she told me about when she was first offered a job at yeah one of the really really senior levels uh, she got offered the job and she said I, I don't i don't want to take it on because i feel that will compromise you know my child care my relationships etc etc now to, to the credit her uh, boss offering the job at the time said that's exactly why we want you to do the job she was surprised at that because she was all prepared to say no and be able to say right well yeah i told you so this is just a male dominated blah blah uh, but she held her ground uh, and that's that's one thing that i learned I'm, uh, I'm still at one level i still think about myself as a younger the 10 year old kid from Manorama in south auckland uh, and how i go about doing everything uh, that i do i haven't lost that part of me so i think she was authentic she was clear about what she stood for and she she created a with playing for those that were around her including myself so i'm interested in that right so when my mum always you know from when i was 11 you know if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything clearly she stood for something but sometimes with charismatic leaders we have a really strong moral and ethical compass it sends sets a um a, a set of rules which are a blind that goes through the whole organization so people know what is right what is wrong how are we actually going to play this you know you've had to go through now you know heavy lies the crown type thing um that people will talk through is there a moment that pops up and you don't need to get into full details of it that that you've really had to question what do you stand for and why specifically in the organization where it's like hey the easy route here is just to maybe just shut my face and just tick along but the right thing to do is dot 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 what was yeah. one of those moments that you've had in your career so far 
Yeah, I've had lots of them actually, and I think that's that's good. That's how you learn. I didn't get it right, but there's been lots of times I did get it right. The one that I think about, say, COVID is probably the most recent example. Yeah, we had a situation where our revenues went from you know a hundred down to about fifteen, right? So massive overnight. Boom, there you go. Now the 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 usual thing bosses do in that situation say we've got to cut costs. Totally legitimate response. And how do we do that? Just get rid of people. Now, what I said was, look, actually, I went out to the firm and, and shared this. You know, we've got to respond to this. We don't know. Get this back in March 2020. So you didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Uh, so look, we've got to deal with this. But, uh, and we are going to cut costs. We're going to cut them in these areas. And we are going to reduce our employee costs. But the way we're going to do that is every time someone leaves the company for their own good reasons, we're not going to automatically re replace them. We're going to say to ourselves, actually, can we uh, farm their job to others? Can we put someone else into that, that job and stop doing the other bit of work that they were doing from a priority perspective? That's what we, um, the public service call it the sinking lid, right? Terrible expression. But we said, actually, as people go, yeah, we won't replace them. Yeah, we'll find different ways to make things work. So I'm really proud, actually, that we, you know, we saved our year-on-year -year cost reductions was massive. And we only had something like 15 people made redundant. And uh, there's only two of those that were redundant because of COVID. The other 13 was because there was a piece of work that we'd already agreed to stop, a, piece of, a, bit, of, a bit of activity that um, we were agreed to stop before COVID came along anyway. Now, our, yeah, and we saved you know, plenty of money on the employee costs just because people were kind of, you know, the game worth playing was if we all banded together, we can all save our jobs, so to speak, you know, and we can all actually have development out of this, blah, 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 blah you know, create, create the game worth playing. And, and what it requires of us is this, this real willingness to give up our favourite thing for the betterment of the overall team. And we worked our way through that. I'm really proud of that, actually. Two people resulted in COVID, had COVID-related redundancies um, at a time when most other companies were like, again, I'm not criticising them. They, you do what you do. We just chose to do it a different way. Now, I'm sure when this thinking came through, there would have been some, in, and I'm not necessarily saying the CFO that's looking at the spreadsheet all day, but mm. there would be some that are looking at most of these other um, businesses for that time to say this is the way to do it. How how aligned was everyone internally in most of these organisation stuff? When you th is it, was it a major split or was it like, hey, this is what we stand for, this is what we're about, stuff everything else, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and this is the game worth playing? What Was it tension or was it like, yeah, yeah, there was good tension before we made the final decision. So good tension being that diversity of views and, and debate happening amongst the executive team and then you know, through to the board. But because we were clear on what we stood for around our people, it was some, somewhat you know, the antithesis of that to say, right, well, these, you know, this is the first time we've really come under pressure, so let's kind of put the knife through. Uh, we actually said, well, given what we stand for, and we've actually documented it. It's in a, it's in a book called uh, The ZY. It's um, yeah, Google ZY and it'll, it'll come up on the internet. Because we were clear on that, and I, I keep saying to people, the answer to everything in our company is in the ZY. And people come back and say, oh, yeah, Mike, I, I read it, and the answer's not there. Now, it's not the specific answer to everything, but the way to think about things, the way to relate to things is definitely in there. And because we have this strong commitment to people we always have, that's why we were able to take that approach. It made lots of sense and consistent with our culture to take the approach that we did. And yeah, it's a certain amount of bravery. It wasn't like it was a no-brainer because you had no control over that in the sense of, gosh, who knows how that's going to end up. But, um, you know, once the team realised that, or you know, if I, if I personalise, if people knew I was committed to them and their employment 
and looking after their whānau, they were much more inclined to generate other ideas about how we could save money by stopping something, deferring something, finding another way to do it. So it was a win-win all round. Hmm. It's been really, for me, personally watching so many different companies, good and bad leadership get exposed through COVID where there was nowhere to hide. Decisions had to be made, full accountability and transparency was there. And just, you know, talking to different people in all these organisations, it's, it's been quite uh, uh, interesting to see. But I want to segue into, through those times, obviously these things get hard, you've got a bit of a circle. I'm 37 now and I've felt my circle get smaller over the last five years where of trust and crew and whatever for yourself how like right now you've obviously you know done a whole bunch how small is your actual inner circle for for mike now in 2022 is it big is it small and how's that how's that inner circle actually changed over the last 20 years yeah i'd say from a size perspective the the circle of trust if you like if i wanted a better expression is it's probably about the same in, the same in number. It's clearly the people I work most closely with and some um, outside advisors, people I've known for either a very long period of time, like say 20 years or more recently. What I am I'm pretty diligent about actually is connecting with really different people, like putting myself into situations where I'm just exposed to different uh, things, different experiences, different people. Now that may not necessarily get them into the circle of trust, but what it does mean is actually I'm continually stimulating myself Sometimes with things that I really struggle with, like how the hell can someone think like that? Or why would someone do that? And I think if you have that inquiring mindset, you'll be open to, instead of that being a judgmental, like closed question, like how can someone think like that? It's like, wow, how can someone think like that? And there's a lot more tools available today, you know, human-seated design, agile ways of working that really support that mentality. But yeah, I, I, I make sure that I'm meeting with people very differently to myself in situations that I wouldn't normally go into to make sure I keep um, stretching my own mind and then bringing that back, if you like, to that inner circle to say, hey, what are you seeing this? Are you experiencing that? Um, my team used to say to me, um, they would dread, um, yeah, I take holidays like everybody does, but once a year I generally go into the bush, I go tramping, and they go, oh my God, Mike's going tramping. What the hell is he going to come back with? Now, in that sense, I'm completely on my own. But actually, I, I'm not at work. I'm not, you know, have the whole you know, electronic media type stuff. And I can just really, really think about things. So I usually give myself a couple of questions to ponder on. And then I would come back with a different perspective on it by drawing upon all the experiences that I've had in the in the last wee while between bushwalks. So, okay. And yeah, the team, they joke about it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good joke. It's not like, hey, boss, here's some feedback um, wrapped up in humor. Uh, but I think they appreciate it. But it does enable me to have clarity. And if I had, it's not like I go walking with my inner circle, right? I, I go walking with my thoughts as informed by that diversity of people that I make sure I bump into. And that diversity is all shaped, you know, cultures, uh, business, non-business, uh, government, stakeholders, customers, all that stuff. There's, there's way more feedback around you than you realize once you've kind of put your antenna up for it. Mm. Yeah, that cu curious leadership to constantly be, be gaining, I call it like lenses, you know, like some mm -hmm. people 
they just have this focus like 50 mil fixed and it's just on this thing and some are like bringing with a fisher and it's super wide and they've seen it all and they get to thread three different ideas and stuff so basically you know you've probably got like a handful internal of the company hand to you i call them like your day one club like those have been yeah. with you from before all the other stuff that you've gone through you know <laughs> businesses ups downs relationships fauna all, all sorts of you know whatever and then you've got this i guess like perceptive of like p pulling through all these different things so is your escapism literally like pen in a pad going at going tramping go go up to flipping root burn just disappear for a week is that the like where's the escapism for you like is that just like a yearly thing or do you like how do you how do you regulate that i guess like for solo time for yourselves on an ongoing basis to keep your mind fresh how do you do that yeah, it's a mixture of, of things, actually. I'm, I, again, keeping it simple, I eat, breathe, sleep, exercise is kind of my mantra. So to make sure I, I eat well, that I exercise well, that I sleep well. Um, and the mindfulness, I, yeah, I meditate most days. Yeah, my longest streak was 111 days, according to my app, that I, I did that in a row. Um, I've been Let's on uh, in, in, and out of, in and out of meditation for uh, over a decade now. So that's, you know, don't have to go bush to kind of create mindfulness. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite a physical person, so I, I do enjoy exercise. So whether it's you know, running or biking or you know, something more uh, extended, like you know, a week in the bush, um, that just puts me into a different place. And I often find it, again, somewhat meditative to you know, say be on my spin bike, you know, grinding away. And I sort of replay the last week. Oh, yeah, I had that kind of session with Robert. And yeah, did I, really, did I really bring my best self to that or did I leave him? Yeah, was our relationship not tidy at the end of that? What do I need to do about that? So I, I do use mm. that sort of daily exercise to kind of rerun the the, uh, the film from yesterday or the day before and just reflect on that. I don't think leaders spend enough time reflecting, right? You've got to create the time for that and the space and the environment. It's hard to reflect between, uh, yeah, it's hard. if I left this, then um, use a half an hour reflection time before my next meeting, I would not be particularly effective at reflection. Hmm. Right? The, the environment, the space, such that you give yourself every chance of, of learning from that, as opposed to mm. judging what's happened. I did, there's something about that, the 110 days, that type of consistency and commitment, mm. not many people have. And it's it's funny, so as a, you know, I've picked it up in a couple of things, you actually probably fit into the, into the buckets, is in my world, you know, ex-professional athlete, I've seen this thing and I can't, I still can't name it yet, but it's this something. And I've seen it in elite ex-pro athletes, any type of pro athlete, um, ex-SAS or military or um, thing and high performing CEOs. And there's this, I don't know if it's a crazy journey, there's, there's something to it. And, I, and the, I, this crosses over all of it. And it's this thing where regardless of what anyone else is doing, whatever, this is my box, this is my rule book, this is me versus myself, and this is what's happening that I'm doing for this. And it's like a self-competition against yourself to either be, you know, to be curious or to push or whatever. So you've clearly you've clearly got that as well. And, you know, probably to, to your point, we're, we're in a, it feels like the, the day of the hero CEO, let me stand at the top with the big shiny thing being the man, it feel, or, or woman, that's clearly kind of past. But the fact that you're already, I guess, branching out that balanced perspective of obviously open perspective plus having that, that you know the meditation thing to take to, to you know, take into those other spots it it's clearly making you way more not only resilient but almost a way way better leader right like you you almost like the world's coming to you in that sense because i'm sure you know not 
that, you know, if you, if you were in 1980 and you said, Hey team, I meditate every day. And this is all about you guys. Everyone be like, wait, what the fuck? Like, who's this dude? Like, what? You know, so it's almost like the, 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 the world's kind of coming to you in a way. So you've probably timed it quite well, man. So good on you. Yeah. So yeah, the reason I got into it, I ended up my antennas up. I used to live in Singapore and I would travel every week. So I'd go to the airport usually on a Sunday night after 10 PM to catch a flight somewhere in the region. And I go to a bookstore. I remember pulling out this book written by a guy called Robin Sharma, who wrote a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Um, and I remember reading that and it was just, I was, yeah, I was ready for it. Um, I remember um, quite a lot of Buddhism nowadays. So when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears, right? So I read this book and I thought, wow, I kind of, this is cool. Now I read it today and go like, oh, what the heck? Uh, but at the time the pupil was ready and the teacher appeared and that, that's when I first started meditating. That would have been about 2004 or five, um, I think. I remember my wife saying to me, she said, oh, that meditation thing, are you still doing that? I said, yeah, yeah, I am. She said, yeah, I've noticed it. And I go, oh, okay, what do you mean by that? And she you know, gave me the feedback that we uh, best get from our loved ones. Uh, but that was you're really- You're less shit. You're way yeah. more cooler to be around. <laughs> you're less stressed. Right. You're relaxed. You're not being an asshole. You're awesome. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the whole thing. If you've got this orientation to learn and a commitment to your own development, there are lessons and experiences and people to help you all of the time, all of mm. the time. So wrapping up in a little bit, but I'm interested for this. So you fast forward, um, what's the year, 2022? You'll be retired by 2052, let's say 2050. Another 30 years, you, you, you still, you still, you're still in there. When you look back at legacy, do you feel of your journey as legacy or journey, like for you, for yourself, or potentially what you, how you can impact others because now you can pull levers? Like when you think about long game, what do you think about? And for you, how are you prioritizing your time to that point? I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think for you personally, it's all about the journey. Uh, and then ultimately, it's about the legacy. Yeah, it's what you leave behind. And I think that's, yeah, I, I, I think like kaitiaki tanga, the whole notion of you know, leave the place in better shape than when you arrived. That is another way to describe legacy. Whereas on the way through, you have to be very, very tuned into journey because legacy can be a trap that leads to arrogance um, or something else that makes it much more about you. I think on the way through, it's all about your journey. And at the end, it's about the legacy you leave behind uh, for others. You know, we are our future. Yeah, we're just borrowing from our from our children. We are not necessarily inheriting from our ancestors. So I think that's a really important perspective um, on things. And, you know, kaitiaki, uh, leave it in better shape than when you arrived. I did not expect you to be this deep, mate. I knew you're a good bastard, but I did not think that you'd be from 20 years deep on the meditation with the, with the Buddha saints and the monks and the teacher is ready. It's, that's great, man. Good on you. Well... I appreciate your time. I know you're obviously a very, very busy man. The team's shifted around some calendars a couple of times from, from my travel schedule and, and yours too. So I appreciate that. And um, before we go, just good on you for not only the good work you're doing with everything you're doing at Z and everything as well, but probably more importantly, is these little breadcrumbs of good leadership that you're doing and you know being able to have that bravery through COVID and, and all those things, those things matter and those breadcrumbs obviously manifest themselves over the longer tail. So you don't need to do too much, you know, reflecting on this chat, mate. You've brought your full self here. You've given it a hundy and now you can happily go into your next power move to do whatever it is you're going to do, which we probably can't talk about for NDAs and legal was probably secretly wanting this to get shut down ages ago. So I really appreciate your time, my friend. Uh, you're welcome. Kia ora. Presented and brought to you by Today FM.